Welcome to Coffee House. I am so excited to be back. We are looking at a kind of insert book here that we didn't have on the list, but it's Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. This is a book that everybody probably has read by this point, so I thought it was an easy one to just kind of plug in. I originally read it when I was in undergrad. It was published, I think there was a, what, late 90s is when it was published. There were more editions. There have been multiple editions thereafter. He won the Pulitzer Prize for the damn thing. So, uh, yeah, it's been well discussed and talked about since then. It made him kind of an international celebrity for this book. So, as always, we will go through the contents, and then we're going to do an analysis where we talk about the good and the bad of the book. And then we will do a big picture, which I have yet to draft. <laughs> I forgot I didn't draft that part because this is pretty long, actually. So uh, it's going to be pretty heavy on the actual parts of the book and the analysis. But that's that. You can check the description for any books of mine that you want to have a look at. I'm still working on a couple of them. And the stupid audiobook for, <laughs> for one, of my, one of the books that I published under a pen name. But they will be done soon. That, then you will be able to criticize the hell out of what I write as opposed to just listening to me from on high criticizing what everybody else does. This is Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond, and here are the contents. So, obviously, there are differences between societies, and this book seeks to try to understand that in a, a broad, world-ranging context. It starts out with him in New Guinea, and he's talking to a friend of his there called Yali. And Yali's inquisitive and interested and in seeing that there was a whole bunch that was coming from Western nations to be taken to New Guinea. He asks, why is it that Westerners have more cargo, they call it cargo, than New Guineans? So this sparks kind of the central idea of guns, germs, and steel to try to figure that out. Diamond suggests that New Guineans are on average at least as smart as Europeans. And yet by around 1500, there are already very big differences between the different civilizations. He suggests that Aborigines, even today Aborigines who didn't have any access to technology or modern society, they are able to master the technology when it's given to them. And he implies that cognitive ability is socially constructed. That it measures cultural rather than underlying intelligence. And then suggests soon after that that, that New Guineans are actually more intelligent and interested than Westerners. And suggests that uh, Westerners, there's something related to disease that he talks about, how they had been pruned out by diseases because they live so close together. But also that Westerners watch a lot of TV, so that's why they're dumber. And that the <laughs> that people are, non-Westerners are genetically probably superior to the Western. And so even though the Europeans have a genetic disadvantage and a social disadvantage, uh, they still advance to farther and faster than others. Now, I'm going to jump in here because this is one of those things that it's uh, it seems quaint at this point, but it's really obviously an annoying reductivist look at what intelligence actually is and what's being measured by intelligence tests. And it's still something, it's a law in the books. I remember when I was in law school, they talked about this, how standardized testing is biased, but they would only suggest that when non-white test takers got a poor score on it, not when they got a good score. And it's thoroughly annoying. I mean, obviously there are markers and uh, they, the intelligence tests that we use have insane predictive abilities when it comes to following people throughout their lives and determining what they're capable of doing. And it would make a tremendous amount of sense for humans in general to have these kinds of normalized means of understanding and approaching the world that is mostly consistent across different cultures because we, we have most of the same things that threaten us, that we have to deal with, and that we have to survive against. 
So it makes sense to have this normalized structure of intelligence that is universal, relatively universal, and that some people are better than others at. And it's something that can be measured, and you can use that to determine how people are going to be able to function in different categories. So it's really annoying when it's something like this where they just kind of discredit it at the outset. And of of course, it's this weird, and we'll get into it because I read some of the commentary on this book later, but we'll get into it then when they talk about it. It is this lowered expectation and this overcorrection about, oh, well, I would never say that Westerners are smarter than non-Westerners, you know, notwithstanding all the obvious evidence that is obviously more complex than, than we would generally acknowledge. But still, I would never suggest that, but I will happily suggest the inverse, suggest that non-Westerners are for sure genetically superior to Europeans. <laughs> And it's just, it's that patronizing, you know, racism or whatever else that people are so willing to do because they're trying to cover up the fact that they almost certainly do consider themselves superior in some way. And later we'll talk about, like, the the accusations of racism against Diamond, and I don't make it in the same vein as they do. But when it comes to, especially academics, uh, they are very willing to engage in this kind of racism, where they're incredibly patronizing and can't be honest about this stuff because they feel like they have to overcorrect on the other side. But anyway... So he talks about that there are lopsided outcomes, um, that climate doesn't really explain it because of the short time period, and how climate is spread out through the rest of the planet. He talks about the slave trade, and that it's a good point to start around 11,000 BC. That's when plant domestication started, and that's really where you can kind of see the divergence between populations. He brings up Africanus, Habilis, and Erectus, you know, our ancestors, and how they were still in Africa around this time. Or not around this time, but they were still in Africa for a long period of time. And it was Erectus who was the first to leave. But we have evidence that they were in Europe around half a million years ago. And then there's some discussion of Neanderthals. And at this point in the scholarship, he suggests that Neanderthals were just completely wiped out. But now now we know, based on genetic evidence, that there was a lot of interbreeding. It wasn't just that they were wiped out. But uh, Neanderthals buried their dead, they used tools, and they seem to develop these things independently from our ancestors in Africa. There are African skeletal fragments that were contemporary with Neanderthals. The African skeletal fragments, they didn't have any art, and they didn't uh, hunt dangerous prey, and they couldn't even catch fish at that point. So it was around 50,000 years ago where there was a great leap forward. And he uses this phrase, great leap forward, which I think is ill-advised <laughs> given that was the same term that Mao used when he killed like 100 million uh, Chinese people. But this is where we have the Cro-Magnon develop, where they use multi-piece tools. They use harpoons and bows and arrows. They're able now to hunt dangerous prey from a distance, and they have things like artworks and cave paintings and musical instruments. So this is kind of really the explosion, culturally, of what humans would eventually become. And so throughout this process, they infected, killed, or displaced Neanderthals and interbred with them, as we later found out. Then there's a discussion about how the Australian and the New Guinea megafauna went extinct soon after human arrival. And as an aside, I do wonder if once they they migrated to these places with the megafauna and started, you know, consuming those, I wonder if the increased fat content and animal protein that they were able to get from these things, I wonder if that really contributed a lot to our rapid development around this time. But, you know, obviously that's a, another question on its own. So then we go into discussion of farming power, the roots of guns, germs, and steel. So the availability of more consumable calories is a very important question, because most biomass on Earth is not digestible by humans. 
farming, what it did was it allowed for more calories per acre to be produced. And then that leads to a whole bunch of other things. And one of the big things was livestock. Livestock, you not only get milk and meat from those, but you get fertilizer, which is going to help your crops. In addition to getting plow animals like cows and yaks, in some places using oxen, and those can draw plows in land that you wouldn't otherwise be able to till. And once you get food surpluses, you can support more people and, and you can use people to protect your food. And then you'll end up with political elites who can capture the surpluses and use it as a means of gaining power. And you can also have things like artisans and producers of weapons and things like that because you have these surpluses. In addition to the fact that now you start getting travel on large mammals like horses, and this exposes the people to more diseases that they otherwise would not have been exposed to, which of course would have grander implications down the road. History's haves and have-nots. So this is about the, the basic divergence between people and how you end up with haves and haves not, have-nots. So the question was, why is there a failure to develop in good areas? So you have areas that are good. They have the right kind of land. They have the right kind of temperature and that sort of thing. Uh, why didn't they develop? Whereas places like Southwest Asia, China, Mesoamerica, the Andes of South America, and Eastern United States, why did food production arise de novo in all those different places but not in others? And in Western Europe, it was primarily triggered by the arrival of crops that are already domesticated. Things like the Ethiopian coffee bean. And Southwest Asian crops spread to Europe and methods. And then places like California and the Pacific Northwest and Australia, they didn't have their own. They were brought by Europeans. And then you have this decline in the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. And there are a number of factors that went into this. So this was the decline in the availability of wild foods. So you have the extinct large mammal species. You have increased options of wild plants. You have the cumulative development of technologies to store foods. And you have a link between the rise in population density and food production. And you don't really know whether there's a cause and effect, which one causes what, but they mutually correlate to each other and become a positive feedback cycle. And then once you have denser food producers, uh, when they are able to farm, then you have greater numbers that are able to wipe out hunter-gatherers, which is just small bands. So how to make an omelet, the unconscious development of ancient crops. So wild plants end up getting turned into crops. There are things like almonds that were formerly poisonous, and this always makes me wonder about what being allergic to actually means, uh, because, uh, you know, my former paramour, she was uh, deathly allergic to almonds, but we were all deathly allergic to almonds because they were deathly poisonous for a long time. But what happens is that they were selectively genetically modified. You know, even if you didn't know you were doing this historically, that's what was happening, is that you were selecting uh, and changing the genetics of crops. So so that they could be useful to you. Still today, there are a bunch of crops that have been failed. They were tried, but were not able to be domesticated. Things like acorns. Uh, and it was funny because acorns, you have squirrels who accidentally plant acorns everywhere to build and will grow acorn trees. And one of the problems for us is that then we have a bunch of acorn trees all over the place and we aren't able to actively select them because they take so long to grow. They take like 10 years. We can't select the ones that are better for us over time to genetically alter them because of these damn squirrels. <laughs> Apples or Indians, why do people of some regions fail to domesticate plants? So in California, Europe, and parts of Africa, they really had a hard time domesticating any kind of plants. And the question was whether it's a problem with the local people or problems with the plants themselves. And the thing to realize is that about a dozen species of plants, out of the many, many species of plants, account for the vast majority of crops worldwide that are consumed. The cereal crops alone account for half the calories consumed on the planet. 
So Diamond suggests that uh, like the Native Americans who are here, and just to say, I want to go over this Native American uh, or Indian, you know, Indian, it was the wrong name because they were in the wrong place, whatever. Native American doesn't seem like a better term. You know, I feel like we should be referring to them by their tribal name. It's not because I have any more, I don't care. I'll call them the wrong name. It doesn't make any matter to me in much of any way, but it's inaccurate because obviously American is based on America Vespucci, right? And that has nothing to do with them. And yet we think the respectful term is to call them by that name. It's just, it's an odd thing. But anyway, so you have Native Americans uh, who could have domesticated apples but didn't, but Diamond feels that they would have eventually over time if there hadn't been an intervention. And he also suggests that it's not the people or the apples. It really lays with the entire suite of the wild plant and animal species that are available. And then we go into my favorite part of the whole book where he talks about all the different animals and which ones are domesticable and which ones are not. So zebras, unhappy marriages, and Anna Karenina principle. Why large mammals were not domesticated. So the Anna Karenina reference is the, about the beginning of the book. You know, I think it's the first sentence or whatever where it talks about how happy families are happy in the same way, but unhappy families are unhappy in their own way, their own distinct ways. So that's what he's saying is that large mammals, they have their own individual reasons why they can't be domesticated. So the ones that were domesticated, the cows, sheep, goats, pigs, and horses, were available in certain places. There are other animals like elephants. Elephants aren't domesticated, they're tamed. So they can be caught in the wild and used for particular purposes, but they're not able to be bred in captivity and um, really used the way that those other animals are transformed into something more useful to humans. Australia always had far fewer large wild mammals. Eurasia has the highest rate of domestication of the mammals that are available. And the major five that are in Eurasia were adopted by other cultures, you know, like in Africa. And the ones who adopted them were able to overrun their rivals who were closer to them. So he suggested the problem lays with the local mammals and not the people. Mammals have to have many characteristics to be domesticable, and if they don't have any particular characteristic, it makes it virtually impossible. So you have to question uh, what you have to feed the animal. You know, you don't really domesticate carnivores. In our case, it's except dogs, which are omnivores. We've been able to do it with them, but otherwise carnivores are kind of off the table. They have to grow fast, so they have to have quick growth rate, not like a gorilla or an elephant, which takes forever to get to that point. And then you have captive breeding problems, like cheetahs. They've tried to do this to captive breed cheetahs. I think there was one successful one somewhere. But they generally don't reproduce in captivity. Part of their like mating ritual is that the cheetah has to chase a female cheetah for many days as part of the ritual, <laughs> the foreplay, before she'll be ready to mate. And they're not able to do that in captivity. Then there's nasty disposition. The animals with nasty disposition, you can't really domesticate. So some mammals are incurably dangerous, like a grizzly bear. Uh, you can try, but it's generally not going to work out for you. The African buffalo is, is one of the most dangerous and unpredictable animals. And if you were able to, they could be very useful, but, uh, you know, they're very dangerous. Hippos, similar. They actually kill more people each year uh, in the areas where they are than lions do. Zebras, uh, they are impossibly dangerous as they grow older. They have a habit of biting and not letting go people uh, when they get into a conflict. 
And they're actually, <laughs> this is funny, they're actually really good at ducking ropes. They just have a particular affinity for the ability, like if you try to lasso them like a horse, then they're just really good at ducking the ropes. Uh, I wonder if you introduce just a bunch of cowboys into the area, and so the cowboys had to get better and, you know, use special tricks. The ones that would end up getting caught, the zebras that got caught, would be the ones who reproduced, you know, and if they were able to in captivity. And so the, the dumber ones... <laughs> who were incapable of ducking ropes would be, you know, more populous after that. I wonder if that would work. But they also have to have social structures, particular social structures. They have to uh, operate in herds. They have to have dominance hierarchies. They have to be uh, able to go through ranges as opposed to be stuck in one territory. So the humans are able to take over the dominance hierarchy. So if they don't have that, it makes it very difficult. You know, just like cats are not submissive to humans and it's difficult to get them to do anything. You have to worry about that. That has to be a consideration. And then, oh yeah, there's this brief discussion about how the major axis of the Americas is north to south, and the major axis of Europe and Eurasia is east to west, and that changes the way you're going to be able to, because obviously the climate from east to west or west to east, the climate's going to be consistent across that, so if you have crops that work at a certain latitude, then you can just plug them all the way across, as long as there are no you know, other geographical barriers. Whereas north to south, you don't have that. You know, you have it, it changes as you go from one end to the other along the axis. So it has uh, an impact on the ease of food production spread. So he talks about the spread of food production in the Fertile Crescent at this point, where he talks about a lot of crops are actually preemptively domesticated because of their genetics. So they're easier to domesticate just because of the way they're structured. And some, you can package entire crops and send them to different places like the Balkans, even though they'd never seen them before, and you can just plug them in there and they're perfectly fine. In places like Mesoamerica and South America, you you have real trouble trying to get a lot of crops to spread. And it's not just the latitude determinant, whether there's a, a long latitude, but also topological considerations, you know, whether it's it's dry and unsuitable land, where the mountains are, all that sort of thing are going to impact it as well. And when you engage in food production and exchange, you're likely to engage in other exchanges as well. So like technology and that sort of thing. The lethal gift of livestock. This is about the gift of germs. So once you have densely packed cities, of course, you're going to have more disease. And it's going to run through. You know, you have smallpox in Rome that's killing thousands of people. You have the bubonic plague in other places. And you're getting these diseases from animals. But over time, you're getting people who are immune to these diseases. And you're getting exposed to them on a regular basis. So then you have the Native Americans, who obviously they catch their diseases. We need to think of another, another name for them. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to do, but we need a better name. But they get killed by these diseases they hadn't previously been exposed to. The Aztecs, you know, millions die from smallpox because they'd never been exposed to it. And in these places, you have the rise of dense populations that start later, and you didn't have the same animals that were domesticated uh, used in places like the Aztec. But in Eurasian areas, you have herd animals, and that had tremendously benefited them in developing these immunities. Blueprints and borrowed letters, the evolution of writing. So he talks about the Sumerians and early Mexicans developing alphabets and that sort of thing. Talks about the Greeks and the Etruscans. But of course, uh, it was developed initially to for record-keeping related to food surpluses and rudimentary bureaucracies. It's not a sufficient condition, though, to really develop because you need many other things to happen beyond food surpluses uh, to develop an entire writing system. Few independently developed them. Most of them were um, given by other cultures and modified as opposed to developed in isolation. 
Necessity's mother technology. So this is about, you know, like firearms and ocean-going ships and steel equipment. Why were those developed in Eurasia as opposed to somewhere else? Uh, most of the technologies were borrowed from other societies. And the questions are, of course, ease of invention and the proximity to other societies are the big factors in this determination. So you can have things, you know, through trade, you get this technology or subterfuge or war, you're going to get this kind of information. And it's important. It's important whether you're abutting societies that you can exchange this kind of information with. You had Japan back in the day when they abandoned guns for social reasons. So there was a social resistance to the use of firearms, even though by the by eighty sixteen hundred they had the most advanced guns on the planet. But you need few geographic barriers. You need competing societies. That's a huge one, is you need to be able to have that competition between societies. And Eurasia was the largest landmass to cultivate this kind of competition and exchange of ideas. From egalitarianism to kleptocracy, the evolution of government and religion. So for most of history, we were operating in bands, and he makes a distinction between bands in the first instance, tribes, which have what he calls a big man. So it's not a bureaucracy, and the big man, you wouldn't be able to pick him out of a lineup. You know, if you were just looking at the people, you wouldn't see that he has some kind of superior standing uh, amongst this group. But the tribe has a big man who has a special stature. And then you have a chiefdom, which is, you could recognize by far now, you're building up these rituals that demonstrate that this one has uh, a particular particular stature in this group and there's a you know kind of rudimentary rituals and ideas about what people need to be doing and then you can have things like lineages uh you know by heredity and more complex rules and then you have early states and he suggests that irrigation wasn't a likely driving force because it came later but you have the early states now and you have food production and you have things like fixed residences so you can find people that you previously knew <laughs> which is a big development and then you have things like central power that are developed and you have states that are being created now. And then in the, I think it's the epilogue, he suggests that if you flipped around where people were, like if you just took people who are in one place and swapped them with the Europeans, then they would have developed all the same things. So this is uh, the uh, the very essential environmental determinism. This is suggesting that no matter who you put in this area, that you would have exactly the same result because people are people and that's just the way it is. It was a matter of environmental determinism that some people thrived and some people did not. And he suggests that all societies provide inventive people and they would have just uh, figured it out. Of course, it's thoroughly odd. <laughs> it's, uh, it suggests that, uh, okay, all the characteristics that are cited by Damien when it comes to crops and animals as being significant or more likely to benefit one area over another, he suggests that humans just happen to be the one species on Earth that are all exactly the same and would have the same outcome no matter what. I mean, he goes against his own hypothesis, suggesting that some people are inventive and some people are not inventive. Why wouldn't it be 100% of people who are inventive if you put them somewhere what are the genetic or cultural aspects that lead to one's inventiveness or, or not so i don't know anyway so that's the end of the book then we can go into the analysis and there were some uh, critics that i read of this book which i thought had some interesting takes just to give you a, a full flavor here so there's one uh, it was called the savage minds or something like that where they had a few people who were criticizing his book but there's one guy friedman who said you have to look at the inequality within populations Diamond just looks at the inequality between populations, but you still have inequality within them. So how does the thesis explain that phenomenon? 
and the inequality within populations is actually more significant and more important to figure out than the other one. Kathleen Lowry, also part of the Savage Minds thing, suggests that guns, germs, and steel lets the West off the hook, and that's why it's popular. She suggested that was the point, is that it's just the grace of God that led to inequality, so it's not their responsibility. It's a kind of wicked cop-out, she described it. Now, I hate this kind of psychological reading of what the thing does. Obviously, I participated in it on occasion, but it is kind of a wholesale rejection of all the possible ideas related to it to just say that it's letting the West off the hook. Now, what would it matter if it did let the West off the hook? If it's true, it's true. So who cares? <laughs> who cares if it if it lets the West off the hook or does, they don't have to feel bad about it? She's su- suggesting that it must be wrong because it does that thing. You know, I don't know. I didn't read all of her writings or anything, so maybe she goes into detail. But the point is just the re- that being a result of it, that it's not the responsibility of the West morally for this having happened would not mean that it's necessarily wrong. So it just gets annoying. And then there were some, uh, most of the criticisms are just calling him a covert racist somehow, even though he's doing this. You know, I called him a racist for a particular reason. They're calling him a racist for a different one. So this is what one says, quote, Both Savage Mind pieces seem to exhibit one of the worst ticks of the academic left, the tendency to evaluate arguments exclusively with, with reference to whether or not they might, in some distorted form, serve the rhetorical purposes of one's political opponents. It's exactly the same approach to debate you find coming from the most thuggish members of the war party. whose lines of argument, e.g., do our actions lead to more terrorism, are ruled out from the start on the grounds that they stray too close to the other side's manner of thinking, end quote. So this one was criticizing the Savage Minds uh, arguments, saying that, you know, just calling him a racist doesn't really do anything. They are suggesting that because they could be used by their political opponents, that there must be something wrong with the arguments. This person is criticizing that position, but also uh, suggesting, you know, it's bringing up the war debate. And is this person is clearly a leftist because they're just concerned about the fact that they want to be able to criticize the warmongering that was going on, you know, around the early 2000s. But it's a, a valid concern to say that, and it's something that still happens today, obviously it's been used so much more robustly now, just suggesting that because your opponent can use, you know, some line of argument, uh, you know, somebody you don't like can use a line of argument, that must mean that it's wrong, or that must mean that you can't say it. It's, sometimes they don't even care about whether it's wrong or not, they just say, you can't say it because uh, my opponent can use that in some way. Okay, and then what it all essentially and eventually comes down to is the whole idea of genetic differences versus social differences or cultural differences. Because we are so stuck on this, because we're so worried about it suggesting some kind of uh, inherent lack of value to somebody based on, on whatever. The reality is, okay, you have minuscule genetic differences between species of sorghum or whatever kind of crop that can have dramatic implications for world history over the course of thousands of years, but the same measurable differences between people are just magically inconsequential? If you wanted to, I don't think that we should even be taking statistics based on skin color or anything like that. Not because we are interbreeding so much now or or for whatever reason. It's just because it's not probative enough to make it worth taking these kinds of taking this kind of information, you know, when it comes to crime statistics or admissions to college or anything like that. I don't think it's worth it at all to take those kinds of statistics. 
But even if it were the case that you could prove with 100% certainty that there were genetic differences that disadvantaged some, some group and advantaged some other group, then why wouldn't that be significant from a scientific perspective? Why wouldn't that be the worth determining whether that has some implication long term on the prospects of whoever? Just within the logic of his own arguments, it would be absolutely ludicrous to think that those kinds of differences amongst millions and millions of people would have no consequence at all. That's ridiculous. Now, the implications of his conclusions in the book are certainly dramatically overstated. He, he acts as though, you know, he figured it out and this is all the explanation of of the differences between societies, and therefore we can all rest easy because there's no genetic component and uh, we could just plug in anybody, my New Guinean friend, into NASA and he would absolutely kill it. This is the leftist mindset of that everybody is, you know, tabula rasa and you can make them into anything if you just have the right social conditions to, to make that the case. Now, science doesn't support that in any way whatsoever. Humans have a certain degree of elasticity when it comes to their temperament and intelligence and all that sort of thing, but it's not infinite. That is ridiculous, and it would be, even if it was somehow infinite, then you would still have to factor in the costs of pushing somebody to be that, and it's most certainly not, so it's a complete waste of time. To suggest that, oh, well, you know, this person who has a, you know, 80 IQ, let's try to make them into a, a rocket scientist because we just think that that's, that can happen. It's, it's ludicrous. But the interesting ideas that come from this thing, you know, things like animal and crop domestication, you know, all the ins and outs of that, the development of immunity and how dense populations and proximity to animals contributed to it, the advancement in tech based on geographic opportunity to, you know, exchange information, all that stuff is good. Uh, so we are going to forego a big picture discussion on this one. We'll probably do a discussion episode wherein uh, we can do some of that. But whatever the case, I think it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to actually take another look at this book and discuss it. I am starting to lose the thread on whether I've actually talked about any of these books before on the podcast because we are a couple hundred episodes in now, so I apologize if I if I double up on some of them. But I do think I'm going to reread a couple of books like um, The Coddling of the American Mind. I think I'm going to reread because the episode I did in that, it was just really fast and I just I raced through all the topics and jumped around a lot so I think I'm gonna do a few of them another time after a second reading and see if we get some more out of that but beyond that we're gonna keep going you know I'm reading Emma right now I'm reading a Thomas Sowell book Conflict of Visions tried to get through this Churchill thing but for some reason just feels I don't know out of time it's not keeping my interest in the way that it would you know I think in the winter or something I don't know but yeah, we'll have that. We have a couple of extra things. There's one article that I've desperately wanted to talk about recently, and I haven't been able to. But I hope all is well, and I hope you'll keep listening, and I will see you on the next one. All right, bye. Bye. <laughs>